Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkin Kazarian. On today's show, we're going to have a tech update from the West Coast. Joining me is Kathy Gallus, lawyer pra- who does her private practice in the Bay Area. Kathy, thank you for returning to the show. Thanks for having me. Kathy, so there's a lot of things going on in the tech policy world, and 2020 is definitely going to be a lot of fun, if by fun you uh, mean stress and debates and a lot of just things going wrong. That's just my prediction. That sounds like a fair definition of fun. Um, What would you say are the main areas that right now, especially in California, the state that loves to lead on a lot of policy issues, are um, tech policy lawyers focused on? Um, Well, coming out of the state, um, one of the problems we have is um, AB5, which was a rule passed, it's essentially a labor law, um, ostensibly because there were some objections to Uber drivers and and such being deemed independent contractors. Um, There may be some externalities and negative consequences arising from that relationship. Um, But when the state stepped in to fix it, uh, they created a number of other problems. AB5 has the effect of eliminating an awful lot of freelance work, uh, a lot of independent contractor relationships. And unless they're in industries that are specifically exempted from that bill, um, there's a pretty profound chilling effect on a lot of labor relationships. And although this is somewhat a broader issue than just a tech policy issue, um, a number of them end up touching on things that affect tech policy or free speech, because for instance, one of the industries that's taken the hit is uh, freelance journalists, um, where all of a sudden journalists who were supporting themselves with a West Coast-based publications um, are now losing their income because the publications are either putting ceilings on how many um, articles that they can write for them, and the ceilings are impractically low. Um, and I think these are state-driven in, in some of the language in the bill. Um, or they're just not using... Um, freelance journalists at all or completely different freelance journalists that they haven't had the relationship and they haven't burned the 35 article limit or, or some such. Um, so it's causing great consternation and a loss of income for people who otherwise were able to support themselves. Um, that's bad for the ecosystem. And there's obviously some speech issues and speech issues roll into tech policy issues. Uh, so that's one big thing on the state front. And then the other big thing on the state front is um, we have the CCPA, which is now in force. And- CCPA is the the California Consumer Privacy Act, um, which is sort of the California GDPR. Um, and GDPR is oh the General, General Data, Data Protection, Protection Act. Regula- regulation. Oh, regulation. I think <laughs> yes. I got to get your EU, EU law. Uh, is it a regulation? A directive? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Um, they are in some ways very similar creatures in that they are largely targeted to the same perceived policy problem, which is, let's face it, a lot of tech has been very sloppy about how it handles user, user data, and businesses have also been sloppy, um, and sometimes nefariously sloppy. Um, but they are both very heavy-handed. Um, I can't really say they're not nuanced. Part of the problem with both sets of regulations is they are in some ways overly nuanced. Yeah, which they creates take a jackhammer to everything, just kind of. Well, they've got a lot of rules, and, and the I-dotting is a very difficult compliance task because the conceptual I-dotting that the regulators have come up with doesn't necessarily match reality of a well-meaning company that actually would like to comply with whatever regulation is guiding them. And in that, you mean that a company that does day-to-day business and the way the business is done, even if they wanted to protect privacy of their consumers, the way CCPA would want them to is not 
realistic or just logistically possible? Uh, I think both of those things are true. One of the problems is the way they are difficult to comply with. Um, there's some general contours. The GDPR is difficult to comply with. The CCPA is difficult to comply with. Um, but they don't share enough that if you can figure out one, you've satisfied the other. There's enough differences between the two that after you've spent your resources trying to comply with the GDPR, you've got to go spend them again to comply with the CCPA because they define problems differently. They conceive of relationships differently. Uh, their jurisdictional reach is different. Um, in broad principle, both of them do share certain commonalities, including a very good impetus, which is to say, companies be a lot more respectful about this, do a lot more privacy by design, and um, that's a much better business practice. Your public will like you better, your market will like you better, and we will be less tempted to give you terrible regulation in the future if you have these basic uh, principles incorporated in your business practices. The problem is, is the hammers they use to get regulatory compliance are heavy-handed, ill-tailored for the actual problem, and you cast the same net to catch people who are well-meaning um, and also people who are bad actors who really don't care what they're doing and really don't care very much about complying with laws because law schmas, that's not, they're all in it for themselves. Um, and you end up catching uh, an awful lot of useful services, business practices, technologies, because digital technology is very sticky. Every time you touch something, you leave a record. Um, that's both a problem, but it can, it's also partly how it works, and it's also partly why we're able to get good services. And these regulatory structures don't really understand the technology enough to be able to make good decisions about what is good behavior, what is bad behavior without accidentally chilling a lot of innovative behavior because that stickiness of how we leave records around is also what gives us good services that are useful and helpful and that we would actually like to have in our lives. Another thing, and I wanted to ask you if this was still in the CCPA, was this definition of home where basically your abusive partner, let's say, could have access to your data because you were under the same roof and that created this weird privacy right of accessing data of each other. Is that still in this final draft? You know, I've stopped keeping score to a degree because um, the bill draft changed dramatically like over the time that it was getting rushed together. And then that's not the end of it, because not only do you have the bill language, but then they were part of the bill looks to the state attorney general's office to produce uh, a number of other regu implementing regulations. That process has begun, but it didn't end. Um, so right now you have a law on the books where you have to comply, but we don't entirely know what you have to comply with. And they're also updating it right now. And so you're complying, you already spent, let's say you actually have the millions of dollars, right? You're a big tech company and you've spent them to comply, but now they're changing the rules. And so you have to recomply. And I believe CCPA went into effect on January 1st, but from June 1st, it's going into enforcement. Um, and But it applies retroactively back to January 1st. So if you were violating something between January 1st and June 1st, you'd be responsible. However, something can change. So you don't know what you're violating if it doesn't exist yet. You it's not a good sign of a regulation that 
you want your well-meaning good actors to be able to actually comply. And they're not in a position where they can effectively do so. Even the most well-meaning, I got all the resources, I'll throw whatever at it that you want. If they do that, they're still exposed to substantial risk because we don't know entirely how to comport our behavior. You really don't, that's not a sign of a good law or of a good regulatory environment. You want to have something where um, good actors doing their best um, are incentivized to continue to do their best and that the, you can actually then have some leverage over the bad actors that wanted to blow it off entirely. But what we end up having is these overreactive uh, reactionary schemes that punish everybody, um, but that the impact is mostly felt by the people who actually really wanted to do better um, you've, because you've made it very hard for them to do better. And on top of that, we, again, we're just talking about companies that have the resources to comply. Exactly. Uh, let's not forget about smaller companies or medium-sized companies or even startups who are just kind of trying to get into this. CCPA has an incredible chilling effect on all of them. And uh, on top of that, obviously, I've gotten maybe 50 to 60 emails about CCPA compliance from all the services that I use. And I live in D.C., but the thing is, if companies going to comply with California, California basically forced the whole country to play by their rules that are messy. And as we millennials say, a complete dumpster fire. Uh, yeah, OK. That, that I don't think I dispute that characterization. I mean, on the one hand, you're sort of going to get that effect on any state law. And it's not inappropriate to an extent to have states you know, want to protect the people who live in them. And California is a physically, geographically large state. I think it's what, fourth or fifth largest economy in the world, if you actually like picked it out of the United States and set it aside on its own, it's going to have an impact. What California does is going to affect other states. And that's just a reality of it. But you certainly would hope that under the circumstances, they would do a much better job at coming up with something coherent. So if they're going to speak for the country, let's hope that they speak well. But all that seemed to happen is that they've opened the door where now every other state wants to do their own thing. And now you're going to have potentially 50 plus acts and regulatory schemes that don't speak to each other, don't share enough commonalities. As I said before, GDPR and CCPA are too different to actually leverage one compliance right. effort with the other. It's not um, even a patchwork because patchwork means you're covering different things. It's a multi-layered cake, but it's one of those, for people who've seen Friends, remember when Rachel cooked half like a very sour thing and half a dessert and put it together. That's what it is. That's what it's going to be. And this brings me to my question about the Commerce Clause. So you were just talking about 50 plus states and right. different uh, laws, but state laws that are going to regulate privacy. Wouldn't that affect interstate commer commerce and then basically trigger the Commerce Clause and the constitutional challenge? I think that the open question here is, what regulatory authority is best uh, situated to speak to this issue? Because we can't really say, well, privacy and respecting consumer privacy is not an issue. It's an issue and there's been some bad behavior, um, some accidental, some deliberate, and it's fair to have a regulatory schema that targets it. But who should be doing it? Um, the states acted in the vacuum of there not being a lot of federal enforcement efforts and power to do anything about it. But it absolutely is appropriate for the federal government to speak here. And given what we're seeing, um, it's very appropriate and in fact necessary for the federal government to speak and to basically be the only speaker on this topic. Um, because 
essentially what we're looking at something is some it's this is interstate commerce in its almost most pure ideal idealistic form of you have something on the internet and the internet is inherently crossing state lines and this is exactly what the commerce clause was built for where markets will fail if every state can sort of put up their own barriers and their own rules um that's kind of why we bothered to have a commerce clause in the first place because we didn't want markets to fail due to sort of that protectionism um and it is absolutely appropriate and necessary for the federal government to step in and say, hang on, we got this, and to be able to speak on this issue because it's just devastating, not only for the large companies that do have resources, but as you were saying, the small companies that don't, um, they can barely comply with California. Um, how are they going to comply with California and Washington and Massachusetts and Colorado and Florida? And Montana. Exactly. Um, now, some states have rules on the books that are a little less onerous. I think Nevada has something, and Nevada's isn't necessarily too bad, but um, it's open season at the moment. And every state legislature is very interested right now in picking up the political points of saying, I've done something. Uh, but the likelihood they're going to do something good is, I think, very small. Um, but the effects and the damage that they can cause can be great. Going back to that first scenario of AB5, somebody thought, I'm going to do something. There's a problem. I'm going to fix it. And they ended up wrecking far more than they actually managed to fix. So. Let's do the trifecta of tech policy with the sharing economy, with the privacy. Let's do Section 230 now. OK. Um, there is a little update. Um, we're recording on January, I believe, 30th. Uh, there is a little update on the constitutional challenge to SESTA-FOSTA, the legislation that was aimed at protecting victims of sex trafficking but ended up actually backfiring. And I'm going to let you take it from there. Right. So FOSTA ended up being this Frankensteinian monster of a bill that put together SESTA and FOSTA, sort of the worst of both proposals. They came together um, and got written into the federal code in a number of areas of the statute, but um, in, there was also one edit to Section 230. They ended up adding language to Section 230, but then the other implications of how it plugged into the other statutes created an awful lot of ambiguity about how Section 230 could potentially still apply to platforms that intermediated speech, lawful speech, but it was very hard to tell if some of that lawful speech could essentially fall afoul of FOSTA's you lose your immunity, you better watch out for this and police it. It created a real mess. Um, Craigslist very famously took down entire sections of its classified ads and um, uh, and a lot of speech fell down with it. So people sued. Uh, there's a class action. Um, the Woodhull Freedom Foundation was the lead named plaintiff, but there was the Woodhull Freedom Foundation. Sex advocates went on to the brief because they were running websites that tried to help sex workers. Um, there was a uh, massage therapist who um, used to advertise through Craigslist, and that's how he earned his living. And um, he lost his ability to advertise and earn that living when Craigslist took down therapeutic services because they were afraid that FOSTA SESTA would reach them potentially. Uh, so this was a real mess, and they filed a constitutional challenge, and they lost it, and they lost it because it was dismissed on standing grounds. And the court, standing for our non-lawyer friends is basically if you're allowed to sue. If you're allowed. Um, the question is, 
basically there's a lot of things you may think wrong in the world, but you can't just run to the courts and complain right. about your, all of them. Your interests have to be you affected. Have, you have to have had an injury or a likelihood of injury. Now, when it comes to speech-related harms, they can be a little more prospective, but basically you had to have some reason to say, dear court, I get to complain about this and you need to hear my case because you don't have it to complain about absolutely everything that goes wrong in the world. So it was dismissed on so standing. It was dismissed on standing and then um, there was an appeal and the grounds of the appeal was the plaintiff said, um, actually, we do have standing. This is really bad. Constitutional interests have been heard and are going to be heard. And um, the court took another look at it. And Which court was this? This was the D.C. Circuit, um, the Court of Appeals for D.C. And um, they looked at it and said, you know, they said a couple things. They found standing for two of the of the plaintiffs, and they said that's enough. They didn't critique it for all. They said if we found it for two, that's going to cover the whole class. Uh, one of them was the massage therapist. Um, the question for him was on the question of redressability, because he was harmed by third-party action. It was the decision Craigslist made to take down the uh, the section of his, his ads. Um, but redressability meant that if we give you the result of this lawsuit that you want, will that actually fix your harm? Because ultimately it was a third party not subject to this lawsuit who had actually caused the harm. And they said, yes, we can totally see the link here. That's totally fine. Um, the other was more interesting, well, a little bit more interesting from a geeky lawyer's perspective, because they looked at the statute and the morass of terminology that they put, not just in Section 230, but around other spots of the federal code and said, all right, you know, they could totally see what the government's argument was about, well, you could totally read SESTA-FOSTA in one way to say these plaintiffs are totally fine, but it was really ambiguous. And there were some very plausible reads of the statutory language that created a lot of ambiguity and a lot of the risk that people felt and that they were going to potentially end up with huge liability problems was recognizable and the court could see it. And the court said, that's enough of a claim of standing. We can see that you might be injured by this. If you've not already been injured by this, you've got standing. Case goes on. Awesome. Well, what is your prediction? What do you so? So now the case goes back to the lower court, right? It goes back to the lower court, and I guess they will consider the merits of the constitutional question. Um, I want to be optimistic. There, it was a two. The the panel at the. Court of Appeals was three people found standing. Three of the judges found the standing. But out of in, three. Out of three, uh, which is good. Yes. Um, so there wasn't a dissent. Uh, it wasn't a two to one. But there was a concurrence. One of the judges, when he parsed the language, said, all right, look, I'm fine with the idea that you've got standing. But he sort of did a preliminary constitutional inquiry, and he was a little bit less convinced that he could find the constitutional injury. So that's a concern. Um, we need the court now to find the constitutional injury and look at it and decide that there's a remedy available and that the statute needs to be enjoined. So it's not a done deal. Um, things are um, still in flux. But I think it still stands as a caution, a valid cautionary tale for Congress because Congress keeps talking about amending Section 230. Um, I'm wanting to do this to it. I'm wanting to do that to it. And the fact that this case didn't go away immediately by saying we've fixed it and it's fine and nobody has any grounds to complain because we did such a really good job at it. Um, the court found that there were grounds to complain. And even if the if 
the statute is ultimately vindicated, the fact that it was this difficult to get through this process and the court looked at it and said, we see some drafting problems. We see a lot of vagueness. We can see how this gets interpreted in multiple ways, especially when you are drafting something that affects a speech interest. Congress is obligated to get it right. They don't get to be sloppy because we don't get to be sloppy when it comes to suppressing speech. You have to be narrowly tailored to the problem you're trying to solve. Um, and I don't think these reactionary, think of the children, moral panics tend to necessarily do it. They throw whatever language they want. Um, same as AB5. We think we've got a problem. We're just going to do something because we can do something. But you really got to do something right, especially when it affects the speech interests. I think that's the best way to take us out is we can be sloppy when you're trying to regulate speech. Kathy, thank you so much for coming. Please plug in um, where people can find your work and find you. Um, I am a contributor at tector.com and uh, my professional website is cgcouncil.com. And Kathy is also on Twitter. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Please leave us a review so others can find the show. Have a good day. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.